And the title of the sermon this afternoon is How to Fill the Space Between the Short End of Your Stick and the Long End of That Other Person's. How to Fill the Space Between the Short End of Your Stick and the Long End of That Other Person's. Now, if uh, English is not your first language, the idea of the short end of the stick might be a little surprising for you. And there's a footnote to the end, to, at the bottom, that says, noun, short end of the stick, plural, short ends of the stick, a situation, opportunity, or outcome which is less favorable than situations, opportunities, or outcomes experienced by or available to others. So when you get the short end of the stick, you end up getting less than the next guy. The other person gets the long end of the stick. And of course, you can see where we're going with this in relation to our passage for today, which Joe read for us already. And the summary statement is at the top of your outline. There are places where in a passage, the point just kind of jumps right out at them. And so one of the guys who've been laboring all day long said, you gave them equal to us who carried the burden of the day. You gave them equal to us who carried the burden of the day. How to fill the space between the short end of your stick and the long end of that other person's. Well, let's first, let's look at a little bit of background and just remind ourselves briefly of where we are in chapters 18 to 20. Sometimes I summarize it and other weeks I let it go by, but it's always good to catch up. Chapters 18 to 20 form a unit. Chapters 18 to 20 have been called the Little Sermon on the Mount. And you may have noticed over the past few weeks the number of times that we have gone back to the Sermon on the Mount. So this is the Sermon on the Mount in miniature, and it's given in narrative as well as in story form. And when a few weeks ago we looked at chapter 18, we saw that there was uh, a sermon on life in the congregation. And there we looked at things like... Uh, Showing humility, watching out for the, the little one, the neglected one, seeking others out, forgiving one another. And then when we came to chapter 19, we had the doctrine of the Christian home, and we looked at such things as the management of money and divorce. Now in chapter 20, we come to the end of the so-called mini Sermon on the Mount, and it is the doctrine of Christian work. The doctrine of Christian work, the parable of the workers in the vineyard, God's word about spiritual pride. So that in general is the context. But as I've been thinking about the teachings of Jesus over the past several weeks, it occurs to me that there's kind of a summary statement that comes over and over again. Um, you know, the first of you will be last, the last of you will be first. Uh, you have to become like a child in order to be great in the kingdom of heaven. And it reminds me of kind of a summary statement that I find helpful, and that is the way up is down. Jesus's kingdom is an upside down kingdom. The way up is down. Back in my younger years, when I was at camp, we went whitewater canoeing on the Red Deer River. And uh, it was a lot of fun. I'd never been in a canoe that wasn't on a lake before. It's a whole different ball at kettle of fish when you're on a on a river with rapids and stuff in a canoe but one of the things that they warn you can happen is when you go over a shelf in the river uh you know you sort of plunge down over um a ledge kind of a little mini falls maybe a foot or two high uh, you start to backpedal as you come to the to the uh to the shelf 
And then you kind of, when you get right to the point because the water is curling back at you, then you push and you go. But if you fall out, you get caught in a cycle. It's like being sort of caught in a washing machine and it goes around and around. And here's the point. They say that if you try to go up, you're going to die. What you have to do in order to get out of that cycle is you go down. The camping blog Eureka says it this way. If you are on some rapids and get caught in a hole, then you don't want to struggle. You actually want to ball up and go deeper to escape the surface, which is the thing holding on to you. So it can flush you out further down the way. When you stay near the surface, not only are you facing bounding waters, but the pull there is stronger and more erratic. Under the water can give you the propulsion to slip past the dangers. As long as you keep trying to go up, you're going to get brought down. But if you go down to the bottom of the river and kind of wake your, make your way along the bottom, you'll get out of that cycle and then you come up. I think Jesus would like that analogy because time and again over the past several chapters, he's talked about if you want to be great, you got to be small. If you want to be big, you got to be little. If you want to be first, you got to be last. It's Jesus's upside down kingdom. And it works in the kingdom of God. It doesn't work in secular life, but it does work in the kingdom of God. And it's the way to endure in the kingdom of God. So the way up is down. A few things to note about our passage as we look at it uh, quickly. Of course, it's the story of the laborers in the vineyard. And as we read the story, it's important to remember that the vineyard was usually a symbol of Israel. And when people were listening to the story and Jesus was talking about this story, they probably would have thought of the vineyard as Israel. And so it's logical for us to think of the story of the vineyard as pertaining to the church. So it would be like the church is like a male householder who went out bright and early and, rec and recruited missionaries for his church. And as you know, the story goes on, and there are some who are hired early at a fair wage, and then there are some who are hired at the last minute at the same wage. And that causes a great controversy. People feel as though they are hard done by. When evening comes in verse 8, the Lord of the vineyard said to his foreman, summon the workers and pay them the wages. And here the foreman sets it up, or the landowner sets it up, beginning with the last through to the first. So the point of the story is to kind of stick this phenomenon in our faces. The people who have been there the longest and who've been working the hardest watch while the guy who showed up 45 minutes ago gets the same pay as me. And he's off to the bank with as much money as I who labored all day long. I got the short end of the stick. That other guy got the longer end. That's no fair, so they say. And so in the divine innate labor negotiations in verse uh, 13, answering one of them who said, these last worked one hour and you gave them equal to us who carry the burden of the day and the burning heat, Jesus offers three rhetorical questions in verses uh, 13 and 14. Friend, I have done you no wrong. Did you not agree on a denarius with me? Most people think that a denarius was roughly the, the, day that, the wage that a person would be paid in a day. Apparently, that's not 100% certain, but that's a safe guess, and it's perhaps even a generous day's wage. And so he says, you agreed to a full day's work. You agreed to be paid for a full day's work. 
take what's yours. I wish to give if I wish to give this to the last as also to you. Is it not lawful me for me to do what I want with what is mine? Or why are you envious? Because I am generous. Well, workers back then were in a different situation than we were, than we are. Uh, and I just want to remind us about the situation. There were no labor unions um, in the um, agrarian economy of uh, first century Judah and the Mediterranean and Roman worlds widely. People in the field of agriculture were underemployed. So people would come early hoping to be hired. And if they weren't hired, there was no way to pay the bills at the end of the day. There was no cushion. And so one of the things that you notice time and again is that the landowner keeps going back and looking for people who need a job. And then he sends them to the vineyard. And then he pays them all just the same. Work and employment back then were uh, difficult. It was a hand-to-mouth culture. And there were no cushions. And employers, in effect, kind of owned their people. And most of the employers that would have been around at that time are much like the employers that you see when you drive between here and Barrie and you go across the canal flats in harvest time. There are a lot of um, Mexican immigrants who are in the fields picking and there are extra workers that are there because it's harvest time and we need to get those strawberries or whatever they are out of the field. And so that's what the, uh, that's what the worker did. Well, I want us to notice before we come back to the big point, uh, just a few things that are destabling features in the text, because I'm kind of nervous when you boil down a story and a parable even to one point. And I just want to notice a few things in the text that I think are also important in addition to our main theme. One is if you look at the translation, you'll see that I have chapter 19, verse 30 included. But many first will be last and last first. And then at the end of our paragraph, 16, so the last should be first and the first last. Well, this is kind of like a first and last sandwich with the story of the parable of the laborers and the vineyard in the middle. And there are different ways to read the first and the last. And the bottom line is this. You go back to those passages, those lines again and again, and, and it's like a kind of a kaleidoscope. At one moment, you understand, oh, other people like the rich are first. And we're last, so that's good for us. We're last, now we get to be first. But at the end of the story of the parable, it seems as though there's kind of a reversal. And Jesus is saying, even to the people who think they're last, well, you guys might be first, in which case you're going to be last. So there's kind of this destabilizing influence that keeps us on our toes, that keeps us from complacency, thinking, you know, I accepted Jesus into my heart, I'm going to heaven, and that's all I need to worry about, and I'm going to get reward in heaven. Uh, that's true, <laughs> but, but Jesus is saying, look, I'm the guy with the money. I own the bank. Bank on it, but don't be uh, surprised if the banker has a few surprises up his sleeve. God is a God of surprises, as you can tell, and the surprise here is that he is inordinately generous, so generous that it just bugs you. I mean, the people who do all that work get the same pay as the guy who shows up. Let me be a little bit outrageous just to give you a bit of a picture. You know, you go to heaven, and I'm going to characterize heaven here. You get to heaven, and you're sitting on a nice cloud, you know, and the guy next to you is playing the harp. None of that's true, of course, but, you know, you turn to the guy next to you playing the harp, and you say, hi, what's your name? And he says, my name's Adolf. You say, oh, Adolf. What's your last name, Adolf? Eichmann. You're Adolf Eichmann? 
the one who was uh, tried in Israel for um, the Holocaust and for having all those Jewish victims? Yeah, and I got a message here from Jesus for you. Oh, okay, <laughs> message from Jesus. Jesus says, please go down the street and get Adolf a new harp string. It's a two-mile walk. I am going to go and get Adolf Eichmann a new harp string so he can play his harp up here in heaven. And so you say to yourself, is there anybody like me around here? Oh, yeah, there are lots of people like you. You want to see them? Well, I'll show you. And so an angel comes and says, you want to see those people who are like you? Come on over here. Look down. You see that pit down there? They blow it. You're lucky to be here, bud. A bit jarring, isn't it? You say, well, show me somebody who, uh, who got here by the skin of their teeth. I mean, are there all kinds of people here like Adolf Eichmann? Oh, yeah, I got a picture of one. I'll show you. Comes. He holds up a picture, and it's a mirror, and he's showing you your face. <laughs> I was a missionary in Bungo Bungo, and I ate cockroaches for lunch, and uh, I gave up all my, you know, my, my, my living and my income. And here is Adolf Eichmann. And the next guy to walk by is, you know, who knows? Paul Bernardo makes a deathbed confession and he's playing the harp and he's ahead of you in line to meet Jesus. What do you do? When you get the short end of the stick and the other guy gets the long end of the stick. Well, here's how to fill it. And I think this comes from the passage rather implicitly. And we'll go to that now for the sake of time. So we've gone on to point two, how to fill the gap between the short end of your stick and the long end of that other person's. Notice the disdain, that other person's. Well, I think there's a root cause to this. It was that which was the root cause of the people in the parable, and it's a root cause in our own lives. A sense of entitlement. The root cause of resentment of the other guy who has more than you is a sense of entitlement stemming from pride, prejudice, ego, and or effort. We worked hard to earn the money that we have. We're not those charity types who are looking for handouts here. Those people are the charity types looking for handouts. And the landlord said, well, if they're looking for handouts and they haven't found work, I'm going to give it to them. They're going to get there just like you. You haven't been cheated. If I want to be generous to them, that's my business. So beware of a sense of entitlement stemming from pride, prejudice. I mean, this can be racial prejudice, can be economic prejudice. It can be your own ego, thinking that you're better than other people. And or just effort, you know, that good Protestant work ethic that Max Weber talks about and that he wrote his famous book about. Let's note the root cause and make sure that we avoid it. The second is kind of simple. It's easy to do because the next one is a lot harder. Avoid comparisons. <laughs> That's easy. Just don't look into your neighbor's you know, backyard. You won't see the pool over the other side of the fence. You know, you might hear a splash once in a while, but you, know, you, don't, you don't see the pool and the hot tub and everything else. Avoid comparisons. We compare ourselves to one another all the time, don't we? Because we're insecure, because we're proud. And when somebody else messes up, we can go, hmm, well, I'm feeling pretty good relative to that. But then you meet somebody else who's a lot better off than you, makes a lot more money, seems to have had an easy ride in life. Well, rats. 
Here's the bottom line in terms of the positive thing to do, and that is to rejoice in the other person's better circumstance. <laughs> rejoice in the other person's better circumstance. I mean, it sounds simple, doesn't it? But if you don't have a sense of entitlement and you think that you don't deserve it or you don't think that you deserve it, then when the other guy gets a lucky break, hey, good for you. I'm thrilled for you. I've often wondered how this would work in hockey. Cody, you probably get kicked right off the rink. You know, the other guy scores a goal and you go, that guy on the other team, good job, man. You got right past our goalie. Brilliant. Not, not going to work, is it? But this is an ethic for the kingdom, not for hockey games in real life. Stephen Covey, in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, uh, says that there's a thing called the abundance scarcity mentality, or he calls it just the scarcity mentality. And he thinks that most of us operate like there's only so much goodwill to go around. And we want our little piece. And if somebody else has one, then you sort of think, oh, there's not enough to go around. I can't be happy about that other person's reward because there's maybe not enough to go around. And Covey says, Live with an abundance mentality. There's lots of room for everybody to be blessed. There's lots of room for everybody to be good. There's a champion here and there's a champion there. You can be good at what you do. I can be good at what I do. And then when somebody else does well, you don't feel as though your bank is being robbed. You can rejoice in the overflow of the other person's bank. Rejoice in the other, other person's better circumstance as a way to fill a gap between the short end of your stick and the long end of the other guys. And then here we see what ha happened in the parable. Avoid anger and resentment. Once that root cause is set aside, it's less likely to happen. But boy, it happens. In this story, you can just imagine what the workers were doing when those guys who arrived at 5 o'clock, they're getting a denarius. We're at the back of the line. We've been here all day. If they got a denarius for an hour's work, we're going to get... 20 denarius. And then you get to the front and they get their one. When the hired came forward, they thought that they would receive more, but these also received a denarius. And as they took it, they began to complain. There's a word in Greek that just echoes it. It's goguzo or something like that to the householder. These last worked one hour, and you gave them equal to us who carry the burden of the day and the burning heat. Anger and resentment. I just want to remind you without turning to them, two other stories, one in the Old Testament and the one in the New Testament where this happens. One is the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. You remember what happens? They both come with their offerings. And uh, Cain is the firstborn and Abel the secondborn. And it's clear from the story, if you know the Hebrew words for their names, that Cain is called prize acquisition, something like that. He's the firstborn. You know, he's the one who gets all the photographs of the parents. And then comes along Abel, whose name is Vapor. There's a naming ceremony in Genesis 4 for acquisition boy. No naming ceremony for Vapor. God says, I want you to bring some offerings to me. And God decides to favor Abel's offering. Cain is mad. And so God says to him, what are you going to do with your anger? It's a test. You see, you resent the fact that I'm showing more grace to your brother's offering. 
Beware, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, and you must master it. Cain fails the test. Anger gets the better part of him, and he goes and kills his brother. Envy, because you got the short end of the stick, and the other guy got the longer, is a dangerous thing. And there's our own story. We know it. But in Luke, Luke tells a story that no one else does, and this story is unique to Matthew. And I wonder if Luke put his story in because uh, this one had already done it in Matthew. It's the story of the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. This reckless brother who goes and spends all that money comes back, and the father throws a party. The older brother is fuming mad. He has had it. He has one unhappy dude. Luke 15, verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in to the party. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And then he, God, the father who represents God, says, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Just think of that guy in the vineyard. Can't it help but go back and see, you know, is there another guy standing around who doesn't have money to feed his family? Poor guy, this is his chance. And he says, why, why are you idle? Love to work. Just nobody hired me. Come on, pal, back to my house. Out comes the denarius. When you get the short end of the stick and the other guy gets the long one, don't be angry or resentful because you are not entitled. <laughs> if you work, you get your wages, but don't look over and check somebody else's salary because it might be higher than yours. And what's the point? It's only gonna lead to anger and resentment. Well, that's our New Testament episode on resentment. Our time has passed, and I think we're done. Fill the gap between the short end of your stick and the long end of somebody else's by not comparing, rejoicing in their favor, and beware of anger and resentment because it will eat you. Amen.